If you enjoy this show, you will enjoy the new novel Alice Isn't Dead, a standalone, complete reimagining of this story. It's out now. Find it wherever you encounter books or at aliceisntdead.com. In St. Louis, across the street from a lunar-themed hotel with a rotating artificial moon on its roof, there is the remains of a fast-food drive through I don't know how long it's been abandoned, but long enough that someone, the owner or the city or some street artist or who knows, covered all the windows in a stained glass patterned wrap. So you have this little church of an old fast food joint. It's beautiful and odd. Alice and I happened by it and for fun, we hopped the fence and walked the drive through. The whole system is still there though it's missing a menu and a lot of its parts. The speaker still stands crooked, leaning into where cars full of the hungry and stoned once passed. We stand there a moment and I dare to kiss her, and she dares to let me. It's been better between us. We went through the trauma of defeat, and now we have the drive of a mission, and both have started to patch over the wounds of our past. And just as we kiss, The speaker of this long-dead drive-through crackles to life, and we hear muffled voices and joyful laughter through layers and layers of static. It sounds like a message from the dead, or from another world. This place is empty, right? I say as the speaker burbles away at us. I'm starting to think nowhere is actually empty, she says. Jessica Nicole and Erica Livingston. Produced by Disparition. Part 3, Chapter 7. Speakers. We had decided to organize. It is an overwhelming goal to organize a country, but it starts with the people around you. And so we reached out where we could, to the network of safe houses and anarchist groups that Sylvia had connected us to if we needed to reach out to her. We let it be known that if anyone had experiences which left them with the feeling there was something seriously wrong with this place, had encountered monstrous or strange phenomena on the highways or in the quiet streets of their towns, they were to meet us. We set a date, a month from then, in a park in upstate New York near where I had last seen Sylvia. Maybe I hoped it would make it more likely that Sylvia would join, but I didn't let myself consciously think that. Instead, we tried to show up with no expectations at all. Just whatever came of it was what we had to work with, and we would start there. There were about 30 people. Most were fairly local, but some had driven across the country to be there. Among the crowd, 
I noticed the woman from the front desk at the Dutchess County Sheriff's Office in Poughkeepsie, the one who had slipped Sylvie and I a tape showing what had really happened the night Sylvia's mother had died. I smiled at her, and she smiled too, and then looked away. There was a general sense that we were all embarrassed to be there, that nothing we were doing here could lead to any higher process. This wasn't an army gathering, but children dressing in their parents' clothes. The last person to arrive was a short man in a baseball cap with a confident walk. He gave us both firm handshakes. Hi, I'm Tanya, he said. We spoke once. I passed on a message from Sylvia. I have to tell you, it's about fucking time someone did this. I'm real excited. I am real excited. And for the first time, I allowed myself to be excited too. Sylvia never showed. At a fried fish place near Baton Rouge, we get to talking to a table of folks. Dyed hair, weird clothes, they stood out as much on the road as we do. It was a touring theater group. They told us that they liked tour to the South because in the little towns, the people that need their performances really need them. They told us that it's good as an artist to be useful to people in some practical, concrete way. Otherwise, what's the point of art? We told them about the drive through in St. Louis and they got real quiet. So you came across one of the speakers. The person who spoke was tall, had said their name was Leon and then hadn't said much else. The speakers, I said. Some of those old fast food drive throughs that had been out of business for a while, said another one. If they leave the speaker system there, said Leon, the word is that it sometimes connects with other worlds. Aliens, said Alice, with a degree of skepticism that, frankly, I didn't think our personal experience over the last few years gave us license to hold. No, not that kind of other world said Leon, more like Stephen King. You know, the Dark Tower. There are other worlds in these. Those speakers transmit from other versions of our world. Or that's what they say, said one of the others, trying to laugh through the long hair over her face but not making it convincing. We heard it once, said Leon. We were parked by an abandoned Burger King, eating some sandwiches and the speaker switched on. I got close. I listened. What did you hear? I said. Leon bit their lip, shook their head. Soon after, the group politely said goodbye. Well, said Alice. Man, this isn't even close to the weirdest thing, I said back. As Keisha drove... I asked her a question that maybe had been living in both of our heads during this time. Were the oracles even really on our side? What were their intentions? And if they were helping us, why? Keisha gave the only answer she could, which was that she didn't know. We couldn't know. We could only believe. 
and belief is an uncomfortable function, no matter how natural it may be to the human mind. And yet I do. I believe in the oracles. I believe that they are good. I could always be wrong. We were west to Lubbock when I saw the Taco Bell with the missing letters from its sign, clearly not having served as an actual purveyor of food for quite some time. I glanced over at Alice and she nodded, and I was already turning toward the exit. We pulled into the lot. There were no fences, just a sign in the vacant windows letting us know we could rent 1,500 square feet of restaurant space and to call a number that had been completely scribbled over with Sharpie. We walked over to the drive through system and sat on the curb. I don't know what we were waiting for, exactly, but we waited. And a few minutes later, we heard the soft purr of static, a signal springing to life. As one, we rose and leaned into the old mesh of the speaker, set into its little kiosk under a 90s era bell design. For a moment, there was a scramble of voices amid the static, and then as we moved closer, it seemed to react to our bodies and became sharper until I heard a definable voice and I threw my hand to my mouth because it was my own voice. You wanna do pizza night tonight? I asked from the speaker. Sure, let's make a shopping list. Now it was Keisha's voice. We met eyes, didn't know what to do with ourselves. It was a conversation, a domestic conversation like we had had so many times. But there were certain references, mentions of, of what was happening in the news. It was all more or less what was currently happening right then. And I realized we were hearing an us in which Alice never left, in which I never had to go looking for her, in which Thistle never entered our lives. We were hearing an us that had never gone through any of what we had gone through, and we could listen in from this grass-studded curb off a North Texas highway. On our third meeting, the crowd had more than doubled. We had never advertised openly past our first meeting, instead asking people to reach out to people they knew. In this way, we had grown quickly. This meeting was in the parking lot of a mostly out-of-business mall in the upper Midwest. Stragglers trickled in over the course of an hour, and we let them, because people were mostly coming in from long distances now. Still no Sylvia, but occasionally I would recognize a face. One really had me wondering for a while until I put my finger on it. The cashier at the Easy Stop in Swansea, South Carolina, when Sylvia and I had come through looking for the police officer who said he would help her. The cashier had clearly seen some aspect of Thistle and it had affected him deeply. I greeted him and he murmured, you asked me if I wanted to live in a world where what I saw is possible. And I thought a long time about that. And I don't. I don't. He nodded, more amen than agreement, and faded back into the crowd. 
Another face I knew. Laurel, a Coast Guard officer from the mouth of the Columbia River. A woman whose brother and nephew had both disappeared onto a black barge that swallowed the people who had gone investigating it. Laurel drew me into a hug as soon as she saw me. I'm really glad you came, I said. She glanced over at Alice. Ah, well, Laurel said. Maybe in a different life. Maybe in a kinder world. She squeezed my arm. I'm so glad you're doing this. Okay, who was that? Any time on our journeys that we saw an empty fast food place, which was fairly often in an economy still staggering under what was done to it 10 years ago, we would stop and we would listen. It was us. It was Alice and I, to use Laurel's phrase, in a kinder world. A world where none of this had happened. It would make me cry every time. Alice would just go quiet. In rain and in dry, hot air, and during the day and at night, we got sucked into listening. The work we were doing, the organizing of this group, it felt less and less real to me. This was real. Our voices floating barely above the texture of the static, echoing out from speakers plugged into nothing, under menus with prices years out of date. It scared me. It felt like a ghost story, but we, the us on the road, were the ghosts. And then there was this other us in the speakers. Those two in there were the ones who had lived, and we hadn't somehow. We had left our lives behind, and now we haunted ourselves. We sat under a speaker in southern Utah, in a town that was hardly a town anymore, and I looked up at the full moon and heard us discuss who had lost in a TV cooking competition that night, and I thought, none of this is real. And I meant us. I meant us sitting there. Alice driving now, and I asked her another one of the central questions of our new lives. What even are the oracles? Where do they come from? Time-traveling beings with no faces who turn strange the mundane roadside stops they lurk at. Who do they serve? Alice laughs and gives me the only answer any of us have. How the fuck would I know? Finally, we stopped moving around the country, other than when we needed to go to the meetings we had set up. We would find a drive-through and then we would stay there, because what else could we be doing but to listen to this? We ate and we slept and we listened. We hardly talked. Those other versions of ourselves talked for us. But then, one night, Alice had nodded off and I was still up listening to us walking back to our car after a date. Tired, easy flirtation, with no stakes to it. The kind that happens after years together, 
where the tension can be switched on and off between any given moment. Then I heard us get in the car, and I heard the car leave. But the signal did not follow. I continued to hear the parking lot. People coming and going. Most sounded drunk. It was evening, I would guess. The signal had never left us before. It had always focused in on us. But I kept listening with a pit in my stomach because I felt that I was being shown something and I wasn't sure it was something I wanted to be shown. I shook Alice awake. I didn't know what I was hearing. Keisha filled me in. It sounded like nothing, like everyday life, but we sat in dead silence, listening. And then we heard a man screaming. We heard him pleading. Look at all those people in there. A different voice cut through the static, as though the owner of the voice was standing next to us, and we jumped, because it was the voice of the thistle man, the first one Keisha had met. I want you to look at them in there, right through those windows in that lit building, and not one of them knows that you're about to die. A whimper. No one's going to help you, he said. And he was right. We listened to him being right for several horrible minutes, and then the signal cut out with a squeal. I hadn't thought about it. Or if I did, I assumed that the world we were hearing was a world without troubles. That we had been able to float carefree through our lives because it was a better place. But in that moment, I knew. The world we were listening to had the same thistle, the same monstrous problem at the heart of it. The actual difference was that in that other world, the two of us weren't doing anything about it. We were letting it happen so that we could live our quiet lives. In that world, we too were part of the monster. We never listen to the abandoned drive-thrus again. This is the world we live in. So this is the world we'll change. Now in our 10th meeting, the size of the crowd was getting a little out of hand. People were hungry for it. They wanted someone to tell them they weren't alone in what they had seen, and they wanted some way forward on what to do about it. We didn't know if we had that exactly, but we thought that if we worked together, we could find it. We needed to rent sound systems to hold the meetings. The energy was amazing. As always, we started by calling on the crowd to share stories of what they had seen. Of strange men with sagging faces. Of powerful beings disguised as humans wearing hoodies of things seen on the roads that didn't fit into the narrative this country had made for itself. There was a power in telling our own stories, the ones we knew were true, the ones we hadn't realized anyone else would believe. I didn't know what we had here, not yet, but I knew it was real. I felt the crackle of it. I thought it could be what took us through to the end whatever that end may be. 
Check out aliceisntdead.com for more information on this show and our merch, like the Alice Isn't Dead Map of America, tracing Keisha's three-season journey around our country with hand-drawn art of her many misadventures, available in three different sizes. And that huge size is really stunning on a wall where all the tiny details really pop out. Even if you don't buy it, just do yourself a favor and go to the store and look at it. Or get the memorable Alice Isn't Dead logo as a shirt or an enamel pin. And more, all of that, at aliceisntdead.com. This show would not be possible without our Patreon supporters, such as the thundering Fred G. Yost, the powerful Sean Campbell, the polite Adam Best, the proud Charlotte McEwen, the mysterious Edward Stumpf, and the refined Isaac Daniel Dawson. If you would like to join these folks in helping us make this show, please check out patreon.com slash aliceisntdead, where you can get rewards like director's commentary on every episode, behind-the-scenes updates, bonus episodes, we're releasing a third bonus episode just this week, and a chance to read the Alice novel before anyone else. That's patreon.com slash aliceisntdead. Hey, Alice Heads, which is a name I just came up with for listeners of Alice Isn't Dead and that I don't think I'll ever use again. Anyway, I'm releasing two books this year, which is a weird thing to say, but I've been working on both of these for years and I'm so excited for you to read them. Okay, first on May 11th, 2021, the first 10 years, two sides of the same love story. So there is a love story that happened behind the scenes of Welcome to Night Vale between me, Joseph Fink, and Meg Bashmaner, voice of the Night Vale credits and MC and tour manager for the live Night Vale show. In this memoir, we recount the first 10 years of our relationship, year by year, without consulting each other beforehand. It's a funny and romantic story about how differently we experience and remember our lives. Then, on July 20th, The Halloween Moon, my first ever novel for ages 10 and up. Esther Gold loves Halloween, until the year that Halloween night just won't end. Even she doesn't want Halloween to last forever. No matter your age, if you're a fan of Alice Isn't Dead, I think you're going to love this book. Get these books wherever you get your books. Today's quote. Will not a tiny speck very close to our vision blot out the glory of the world and leave only a margin by which we see the blot? I know no speck so troublesome as self. From Middlemarch by George Eliot. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Night Vale Presents. Find out more about us and our shows at nightvalepresents.com.
Hello, iPod broadcast listeners. My name is Meg, and I am one of the esteemed tri-hosts of the beloved iBroad Good Morning Night Vale. I, along with my hilarious friends, fellow Night Vale actors, passionate eaters, and soft-hitting journalists, Symphony Sanders and Hal Lublin, are now over 100 episodes into our deep dive recap show of Welcome to Night Vale. We've tackled topics like soft meat crown head cannons, Cecil's fashion, and whether Steve Scones were really all that terrible, plus behind-the-scenes stories from the Night Vale creative family. And we've heard from listeners like you about queer representation, Night Vale named pets, major theories, minor questions, and of course, best and worst practices for, um, alternative spa therapy services. If you know, you know. Check out Good Morning Night Vale every other Thursday, wherever you get your eyebrods, eyecasts, pod broads, and podcasts. I think I like pod broads the best. I'm a real pod broad myself.